Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Conology, the podcast that takes a swing at the work of one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm feeling a bit cornered. So join us in our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. Michael, Steph, uh, this is a this is a brave new world upon a brave new world. Satoshi Kon, very different to Studio Ghibli. I think over the past three episodes, uh, that's been made pretty evident. And now you're throwing our format, our podcast, perhaps our entire identity out the window because this is not even a film. What's happened here? It's a TV series, right? So completely new ground for us as you say i think the longest film we've discussed so far would that be the tale of the princess kaguya yes i believe it was i remember you texted me during your watch of that film saying there are short films there are long films and then there's the tale of the princess kaguya and until now you didn't know if there could be anything longer than that and now we're unveiling the idea of a tv series to you an animated TV series, that's Paranoia Agents. I mean, it's a relatively short one in the grand scheme of things. It's only five, six hours long, um, 13 episodes. But considering that, very sadly, we only had a handful of works on screen from Satoshi Kon, Paranoia Agent is therefore integral to the chronology as we've been putting it together. And I think it's a great opportunity to talk about anime TV as well and subject you to some of that. Yeah, I I know that Steph is... uh a big anime watcher and i feel like as we've gone further down from ghibli into con and now into anime tv series i'm scared as to what form this podcast is going to have in a year when steph is just like propping my eyes open alex delage style and making me watch jojo's bizarre adventure that's what it's coming to and be yeah be thankful that this is only five to six hours because this is short for an anime tv series i feel but like all of Satoshi Kon's work so far, pretty much, this is very adult in theme, in nature, very different to Ghibli, very few big cuddly, well, you know, there's some cuddly characters in this one, but that doesn't mean that it's for kids. Uh, we, it's also very complex. We'll be diving into the themes of the show, trying to figure out what it's all about. So if you've not seen Paranoia Agent, maybe go and watch it first, come back, and maybe we'll be able to figure it all out together. Also, we should say, 
this is one of his more adult works, so consider this a, a content warning. There's some pretty gnarly stuff we'll be talking about. But Steph, up first, could you maybe try and tee up the plot synopsis for us? A large number of people living in Tokyo start being attacked by a mysterious boy with gold inline skates and a bent baseball bat, dubbed Shonen Bat. As each character becomes the focus of the story, details are revealed about their secret lives and the truth about Shonen Bat is revealed piece by piece. Okay, Michael, it seems that every step into the chronology makes him a more and more interesting filmmaker. And after three features going into TV, a big move to make, uh, what's happening with him at this point? So where do we leave Khan? We left him on Tokyo Godfathers. In fact, it was during the production of Tokyo Godfathers that Khan started having ideas about making a TV series, making Paranoia Agent, because reportedly he enjoyed working on that production so much that he wanted to keep the core creative team and keep them employed and keep them going at the animation studio so he needed to come up with something to immediately go into production on next of course the big difference this time around is paranoia agent is a tv series um andrew osmond in his book has a bunch of quotes from khan about why this shift to tv um here's a quote from khan I was aiming for an interesting quality that only TV could provide. I wanted the 13 episodes to each have their own distinct flavour, but at the same time to collectively tell a story. And Con would be the overall creative driving force, the series director, the series writer on this series, but he wanted each episode to have a different episode director, maybe different writers, storyboard artists coming in that would therefore make each episode look visually distinct and maybe have different identities as you go throughout. He was also attracted to the idea of a TV series because that meant he could experiment with storytelling, a theme that we've come to time and again on this mini-series. You might remember, was it on our, yeah, all the way back on our Millennium Actress episode, that producer that came up to him after Perfect Blue and said, I want to make a film with you. What other ideas do you have? And Con had that list of maybe one sentence, one paragraph pitches for ideas for films. Well, he said that they'd been uh, massing up for some time and he he said that he had a whole drawer full of ideas that he wanted to bring into this maybe have an overarching narrative but individual episodes would shift focus to different protagonist characters and allow him to use up some of those story ideas from the drawer here's another great quote from con it hurts to see material go to waste so i look for a chance to recycle it what an efficient guy. <laughs> yeah, and I think we'll probably get to recycling of ideas in, in this series, won't we? Maybe, right? Creator team-wise, there's a lot of crossover with this and his other work. Masashi Ando is back as character designer. Um, Nobutaka Ike is art director. Uh, there's a new arrival uh, in the shape of co-writer Seishi Minakami, who would go on to co-write Paprika, the next film that we're going to talk about next week. And, well, we have to shout out composer Susumu Hirasawa, who we last talked about bringing all those massive synths to the samurai sequences in Millennium Actress. Well, he's back here in full effect and has that absolute apocalyptic banger of an opening titles theme, uh, which um, has certainly been stuck in my head 
for the long uh, period of watching this show, and I think we'll never ever leave. <laughs> Should we have a bit of karaoke moment right now? <laughs> no, let's, let's save that for a special bonus eventually. I think we could get Harold to do a, a, a rendition of it. Okay, Michael, as we're moving from film to TV, I'd love to know uh, more on the financial situation on this. How does this scale up to the budgets that he's been working with before? Well, you say scale up, it's much more of a scaling down of budgets, really, in terms of minutage. We've mentioned before, I think it's Helen McCarthy who put it really well on our British Museum episode of Totoro about how budgets for particularly TV anime have always been on the low, you know, lower than they should be and people have been crunching. And in fact, it's almost covered in Paranoia Agent itself. There's the episode about the anime production, about how everyone's completely stretched and going mad to hit their deadlines. But Andrew Osman does mention this in his book. He does some number crunching. And I'll just quote from Andrew now. On Khan's last film, Tokyo Godfathers, he'd been able to budget each 10-minute section of big screen animation for roughly 30 million yen. On Paranoid Agents, he was required to produce two 20-minute episodes for the same amount of money. So you'd be getting 40 minutes for this, of Paranoia Agent for the same price of 10 minutes of Tokyo Godfathers. So... A, a bit more a bit of a stretch yeah i'd say yeah fair enough wow um but i mean tokyo godfather's does look really good <laughs> i think paranoid agent looks really good for, for as well yeah now this is a very adult show as we said so it doesn't go out on network tv in japan it goes out late night um on a satellite tv channel called wow wow um that's in february 2004 and it's then shown the following year in the states also in a late night block adult swim as it was back then for in, in cartoon networks um channel um, but also just to give you a sense of the rising international reputation that con has the first three episodes of paranoia agent were bundled together and shown in london in three different venues the institute of contemporary arts the ica the British Film Institute, BFI, and the Barbican. So like three really august cultural venues showing the new work from this great animation master. So he's really, in in some ways, breaking out of... I don't want to say breaking out. That sounds like we're saying this is elevated anime. That's not what we're saying. But he's very much in this world of art cinema, international art cinema. It comes out on DVD in the UK in July 2005. And both... The US release in the States, the long telly, and the UK release were cut for content. Um, different things were cut from both versions. I'll focus on the UK one because we have more information about that and it was more, more you know, it was, it was longer, it was more involved. So the eighth episode called Happy Family Planning is a very dark comic episode featuring three characters gleefully attempting to kill themselves. And one of these characters is a very young girl. And that really didn't pass muster with the BBFC, the UK's certification authority. And they um, imposed mandatory cuts for it to be released even as an 18, the maximum age rating in the UK. So over a minute of that episode has been cut out and has never been released in any form in the UK. I thought I'd do some due diligence and get in touch with the BBFC for a statement since it has been nearly 15 years since they made that call. And um, this is what one of their spokespeople sent back to me in an email. We believe that adults should be free to choose their own entertainment and where possible, we will always attempt to deal with a classification issue through the appropriate use of our classification categories. However, in occasional circumstances, a work may raise an issue that requires intervention and compulsory cuts may be required before we are able to award a classification. In the case of Paranoia Agent, 
a compulsory cut was issued in 2006 in response to material relating to the issues of suicide in episode 8. Our classification guidelines state that portrayals of potentially dangerous behaviour, especially relating to suicide, self-harm and asphyxiation, which children and young people may potentially copy, will be cut if a higher classification is not appropriate. And so, consequently, in 2006, the BBSC considered the portrayal and treatment of the issue of suicide and paranoid agents to be potentially harmful and issued a compulsory cut in accordance with our classification guidelines. So I've got to wonder, in the 15 years since, uh, would those cuts still be mandatory? Um, Will we ever see the full version of this episode in the UK? Um, we have we've never had an HD release. Now, in fact, the DVDs, the DVD sets of Paranoia Agent in both the UK and the US have both gone out of print, long out of print. And just this year, Funimation, the um, they've they've turned to streaming. The streaming service in in the states have relicensed Paranoia Agent in HD form. They might be doing a new dub. They might be releasing it on Blu-ray this year. That could be this new moment for it. Maybe we'll see it internationally in its intended form uncut but really jake and steph what we're we're more interested in right now is your pure uncut response to the wild journey that is paranoia agents millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we're going to be talking a bit more generally about Paranoia Agent as a series, but we're also going to dive into some of our favorite episodes and some of the themes that they bring up. Uh, But for now, Jake, does this kind of follow on from the Satoshi Kon films that you've seen so far? Was it different? What? How did it meet your expectations? I mean, it's uh, it's definitely something made by Satoshi Kon. Something that I've I've opened uh, each review section with, and you can't really deny. It. And maybe this is the most him yet. And I'll probably be saying that next week when I watch Paprika. Um, <laughs> but. I think this is closer to the realm of Perfect Blue than the other couple of films that we've focused on. It is evident from the start that this is this is a darker beast than uh, his other work. And I think across those 13 episodes, it is the most that I have enjoyed any of his work. And it got me into that really great 
sweet spot of TV viewing where it is compulsive and that you do just have to keep watching. And I, I, I don't get that with TV that often. And it was really exciting to watch this program. It's quite fun to sink into that world and really spend, yeah, five or six hours in Satoshi Kon's mind. Like normally it's over in kind of 80, 90 minutes and here you're getting so much more and like you can really, yeah, just keep coming back to it each week. Well, and, and just he he wants to let you know that he's there right from the start. Michael, you've already mentioned it already, but the Raya! <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think I, it was like nine o'clock. I like, had dinner and a drink or something. And I thought, well, is there only 20 minutes long? I'll just put on a little one and maybe watch one <laughs> or two before bed or something. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to be up all night now. And there's so much energy just in those first 90 seconds. Uh, it's, it was amazing. I mean, you, I've mentioned before how much of a fan of Your Name I am. Maybe my favorite bit in Your Name is when the Rad Wimps guitars kick in about two <laughs> minutes and it just goes absolutely stratospheric. And this doesn't even give you those opening two minutes. This just goes straight in. You know, there's writing, I think it's in Andrew's book, but it's also online where either Con or somebody related to Con or maybe critics have, uh, have projected this onto Con have said that because it was a late night anime show where people are maybe nodding off at half 11 past midnight, the best way to open it is with some yodeling in your face to wake you up, <laughs> make you take notice. <laughs> and it worked for you, Jake. Oh, it really did. Yeah, you you can't help but take notice of this show. Um, but it, I I'm currently on a um a rewatch of Twin Peaks series three at the same time as watching this. So you probably don't want to get inside my brain right now. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned Michael about Satoshi Kon having this drawer full of ideas and using a TV series to get all of those ideas out there and putting those into all these episodes. Um. And to me, that that must be what David Lynch was doing with Twin Peaks 3 as well, because he had such an absence from any screen productions for such a long time. And you can't imagine a man like David Lynch not having that same drawer full of ideas. And then finally, he gets his Twin Peaks 3 and he can put all of that out there again. I think we teased this, didn't we, by saying it was Lynchian. And I think I think maybe I didn't I backpedal slightly and say oh it's more in the craft it's lynchian but actually it's almost lynchian in style too as well about the these dark forces that lay uh, just behind our, our our normal social life yeah yeah absolutely and uh it also made me think around uh what well, would have been a few months later but the premiere of lost would have been in the same year as paranoia agent 2 and although that is your your plane crash in the island is your your central kind of mystery and conflict in the way that Shonen Bat is to Paranoia Agent, uh, Lost uses that as a spring world to explore all of these different characters and the different character will take hold of an episode and so much of that time will be spent on a flashback filling in all of the story about that character and then you tie it back into whatever's happening on the island and absolutely felt that with this show as well. I mean, in, in terms of hitting my my TV touchstones, Lost in Twin Peaks, rolls into this. I'm having a great time. <laughs> I think we're, we're in a good spot because Satoshi Khan is, is, was on record saying that he, he liked 
you know western drama he was very much a fan of live action he wasn't really a product that he was he, he watched anime growing up but he wasn't necessarily a product of the anime industry in the ways his contemporaries could have been um so we're, we're talking we end up talking about other tv shows live action other auteurs as you say it's very easy to talk about mystery box and jj abrams and lost uh, in relation to this but steph is this you're more of the anime head maybe in this conversation is this very different from what you'd get from anime usually do you think or are there things we can relate to other anime series yeah i was trying to think kind of what um what animes is this similar to and maybe it's just my my own anime tv viewing that's letting me down here Mm -hmm. um but it feels quite different i think even in the length you have i mean on netflix at the moment you have original anime shows like doro hedero um which is a 13 episode one season series um and i mean that is kind of their kind of style of commissioning a tv show at the moment and this almost feels like that it feels like you could kind of just drop it onto a streaming platform now and mm. it would fit in so well because you only have yeah these 13 25 minute episodes and it's a complete series uh compared to something like naruto which i'm watching at the moment which is like 500 episodes <laughs> um it's yeah it feels quite different um and just going back to the opening titles quickly that method of putting all of the characters that you're gonna see throughout the series in the opening credits so that you can kind of see them and then every time you go back and watch another one you're like oh i know who that person is now or i know what happens to them that is a really fun um way of working through the series with you um i would say i would love a uh susumu hirasawa and yoko kano collaboration Mm -hmm. Uh, yoko kano did the music for cowboy bebop extremely jazzy amazing i would love that those blasts of energy to just combine i think that would be so cool um so yeah it's it's a little bit different from stuff that i have been watching i think um but I think, I mean, after, I don't know, like 200 episodes of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, I'm thankful to have only 13 <laughs> episodes and to have something that knows where it's beginning and knows where it's ending and has an ending. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Netflix, because as, as you say, this could land quite well and sit alongside the Masaki Yuasa limited series that are going on there, like Japan mm. Sinks 2020, which just went out, to Devilman Crybaby, um, these sort of shorter, more compact anime series rather than the elongated ones that we may be used to you also mm. mentioned cowboy bebop and it's interesting i think wow wow was the network that showed cowboy bebop because it it, it was too strong in content for <laughs> for daytime tv and it comes out i think you know it came out around the same time as when um as a sort of anime adjacent teenager in the mid 2000s paranoia agent would be talked about in the same breath as Cowboy Bebop or FLCL, these slightly wonkier, weirder anime that st- maybe stand aside from the usual genres we, we may be looking at. Um, mm. So it is interesting in that regard. And maybe that sort of leads us into using different frames of reference as we start to talk about what actually happens in the show, because at the heart of it, it is a, a procedural almost in the vein of a David Fincher movie. And that goes all the way to the intertitles for the credit breaks, which look like the opening sequence of Seven with the scratchy kind of butterflies and uh, and film grain. And it does have that crime at its heart with the mystery of Shonen Bats. 
Yeah, and I think for the opening three episodes, uh, that is a great gateway into the series. And I think we've we've mentioned uh, before Satoshi Kon's ability to kind of control and manipulate us as a viewer and gradually descend into his world and then pull it away from us. And it's so smart how at the start I'm watching this thinking this is a this is a mystery show and we've just got to find out who did this to her and that's it. And then in the second episode, kind of repeating the formula, but with a different character. And then three, we do it once more. And then four, I'm thinking, oh, this is getting a bit repetitive here. And then four is when he can really start pushing it and recognizing that now that you've got the formula for what this show is, I can start pulling it away from you. And then as we're into the midsection of the series, we can start getting weirder and weirder and weirder and up the momentum. And then we take a moment to pause and we take a moment to reflect before we go back to the mystery at the end. It's And maybe that compulsion that I had about watching it was down to just how strong his understanding of rhythm is and that perhaps... He's always been better served as an episodic storyteller because it's those end of episode hinges that I felt were so good in this. that, And it was something that Lost did as well, that just in the final 10 seconds of every episode, you could drop something in that makes you have to go back to it. I think on the, the, the second time that I rewatched Lost, I was up until four o'clock in the morning every day and this this was at the time of a uh, love film uh and just just having to continually spin them um and because he he can just control that well that mixture from procedural into whatever the hell else happens so so well i wonder if this is the point where we could dive into this middle chunk as you say jake the the first four five six episodes become not necessarily repetitive but have this rhythm about setting up a character their their backstories their lives maybe different elements of different genres come in i love that there's that episode with the bent copper who really imagines himself as being the lead of some sort of gritty uh, masculine melodramatic manga when really he's an absolute piece of garbage and then likewise, there's the interrogation scene uh, where they find the guy who they think is Shonen Bat, but was a copycat killer. And he thinks he's uh, a character in a high fantasy RPG game. And you, you go into the RPG, almost like Millennium Actress, actually, where you have the two cops being dragged along in, in this fantasy world by another character. And weirdly, the, the, the characters are flipped because in Millennium Actress, it's the older chap who's completely on board with the fantasy with the actress whereas the older chap played by the same voice actor in fact um in in paranoia agent is completely baffled when it's the younger cop with the strategy guide for the game is fully on board with the fantasy after you have that there's suddenly this break where it feels like the mystery in some way has been solved but has also been deepened and made more complicated it makes me again go back to twin peaks where halfway through the second season they you find out who killed laura palmer the big question that announces the entire series likewise here you find out who is shown in bats to a certain extent but then it becomes more deeper and confusing and about law and about rumor and gossip and society and you have these three or four episodes on the bounce that 
spin off in different directions. And really Shonen Bat is just this peripheral character to them that's just in the fabric of society. Um, I suppose Happy Family Planning, I mentioned in the context. Um, how did that one land with you two? I feel so bad because I laughed so much at this episode because like the tone is wild. Like the you're watching this kind of, yeah, noirish procedural that like has moments that are kind of weird and a bit funny but mostly it's it feels pretty dark and pretty serious and then you have this episode where it's just like some sort of weird comedy caper about three people like trying to kill themselves in increasingly kind of bizarre and desperate ways and like I felt so bad for laughing at it but I think it was what he was going for because the tone yeah. is so different and yeah that was just such a kind of a switch where I kind of sat up and I was like oh okay it's like we're on some kind of different episodes now and it's changing direction and and the the link to the wider story at this point is so tangential I think they they have rucksacks of Maromi the mm-hmm. central kind of plush cute character that ties through the whole series and I mean, yeah, Steph, that tonal difference is wild. It, it, for me, I, I'm currently watching some of the animated Tintin series and the, <laughs> uh, running through the streets of that and, and the music for it f- felt closer to that than any of the preceding seven episodes to this. But I think it, it's amazing that he, he can get away with it and it is building that trust in an audience as well that you can, if, if he deployed this as episode two or three, people would not be into it whatsoever Mm -hmm. but you've developed that investment where at this point you can do it and now he can really flex and he can reach deeper into that drawer of ideas but it still all feeds into what we're coming to see as con's great vision right so in in some ways it ties into the law of paranoia agent because by this point we know that shonen bat is this guy going around and trying to free people of feeling backed into a corner by society in some way and these people want to die so of course shonen bat's not gonna go anywhere near them and to help them out in that way but it's the way that they meet via this chat room and this is feeding into apparently this this wave of suicide clubs suicide chat rooms there's a a film around the same time called suicide club which is very um uh controversial when it was released feeding into that these the way that technology and the nascent social media the online world and the media world in general is affecting our interpersonal relationships in some ways this this is the most tender episode because you have this close-knit circle of friends a a surrogate family coming together but then it has at the heart of it this very complex but very funny um, farcical element where when they meet at the train station they all are in in agreement online they want to help each other uh, achieve what they want to do but then when the the old bloke and the younger bloke discover that it's this young girl you then have this farcical almost classic fast setup where they all want the same goal apart from two of them don't want to help the other one and you know it's 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 classic comedy of manners at that point really fascinating um i can i can understand it is quite gnarly it is quite um you know pushing that boundary treading a line tonally but that's the sort of experimentation that we we can love con for going for yeah isn't it 
and uh, the the episode following this etc is the one that feels a bit like a a twilight zone mm. uh collection of even shorter stories that i think is it three or four that we get in with one episode of women gossiping saying did you hear that shonen bat did this and mm-hmm. gradually uh, escalating shonen bat's powers and for me that was that was maybe my favorite of these little contained non core narrative episodes uh particularly the the opening of that of the chap who's crammed so hard that he starts spewing out the equations that he's remembered before he explodes in a bathroom full of his text uh and that that was that was wonderful almost uh it's like treehouse of horror scary door stuff it is very treehouse of horror isn't it it has this the single sight gag visual element of the entire series that i love the most which is shonen bat in the ultrasound (laughs) (laughs) that one is so good i and i love that it's the the kind of new housewife as well trying to get in on it um and being like did you hear about this does she come up with the baseball one where it's like they're at a baseball game and shonen bat is there and like all the other um kind of more experienced housewives are like don't be silly that could never happen that's not real but you know that their stories aren't real either it's so much fun and it it has that kind of yeah that feeling of um when an urban legend spreads around that phenomenon of suddenly everybody has an experience about it and everybody has a story and it just spreads wildly out of control and you you don't really know where it started like where it's come from like how did these these three people even hear about it or come into contact with him but uh, but that is the idea of shonen bat in a way that by the end of the series he doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter where it comes from because like shonen bat can be there can be a shonen bat for everyone for any number of reasons mm-hmm. um and and that's what this episode was for i think Shonen Bat um, is people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to become the Shonen Bat. Um, but but, but it, just, it, it feeds back into Satoshi Kon and the fact that stories have this power within society. It can make or break a person. It can take take its own form. And you're not, you know, like with Millennium Actress, the biography can be mixed with memory, mixed with the work you make. The second episode, which is about that boy whose reputation, the golden boy at school, whose reputation is killed overnight because it's rumoured that he may be shown in that. It's running all the way through this, that it's stories and the way that we want to embellish want to create want to imagine to impress others or to get through the day or whatever and that that feeds directly also into mellow maromi which is one that feels almost like the perfect episode for this podcast especially after we did that documentary mini series looking at the documentaries about studio ghibli because it's an it's an episode where I imagine Khan's one-line thing in his drawer was an episode of an anime series about the making of an episode of an anime series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean this this one is uh, quite gruesome, and it did make me think uh, about our time at Studio Ponok, uh, and why <laughs> we we didn't see the whole office, and uh, who knows what might be <laughs> happening behind those other doors. But uh, for everything that we saw, it was quite lovely. <laughs> But yeah, th- this episode is is a lot of fun. Um, 
but it is quite quite horrible as well it's, it's, it's quite it, horrible it, but it's that mixture of tones you know it, it, i i love the documentary flourishes of uh the voiceover coming in showing all these uh the roles that go into making anime i mean i've been a fan of anime for this long and i still didn't really know uh how what what a cinematographer did you know in in, in, a, in the context of animation so it's amazing to have that aspect there dropped what nine ten episodes into this series yeah and it shows his his strength of character development as well because he is is a brave thing to do to introduce pretty much a, a new character and new story every episode whilst keeping audiences invested in your wider story as well and i think out of all of the single episodes our main protagonist in Melo maromi is the one that you really feel for and you really get inside his head and you really feel his frustration and anger and how much he is put upon and you by this point in the series we've gone from fearing shonen bat to him kind of becoming a hero to some people and at this point we're almost wishing for shonen bat to to come on the scene is this the um the production manager guy who's just terrible at his job yeah is he terrible yeah (laughs) i mean (laughs) i mean the tensions are running high in that in that production i'd be pretty angry if i was there timing certain shots of a of an episode that was beyond deadline and a guy tripped up over the power cable of my computer (laughs) and unplugged it and undid a day's work and if i was the the poor was it the color checker or the background artist who suddenly had a massive pile dropped on her desk saying sorry this needs to be done today and he'd forgotten to tell her that weeks before Um, (laughs) he was pretty terrible (laughs) at his job He he was not great yeah. They should have just given it. I mean, Maromi is kind of running the show at that point. They should have just Maromi should have been the production manager for that. <laughs> and Melo Maromi is the the last of our maybe detour episodes, and it's then in the final three that ev- everything comes together, doesn't it? Like all of those <laughs> narrative threads get answered. No Damon Lindeloffing here. Uh, we know what this is all about, right? Yeah, I think so. But it is fascinating how after that, where you think, gosh, how broad is he going to go? How far spread out is he going to go? And he manages to to reintroduce the key players from the first handful of episodes in often very changed forms. Um, It's quite a whiplash shock, really, to go back to the two detectives now that they've lost their jobs and had to to rebuild their lives. Um, a, A couple of the key um, well, particularly the, the, the Maromi's creator, the, the female victim of Shonen Bat, and then this new version, the mega version of Shonen Bat that has been fed by the bad vibes in Tokyo. Yeah. Oh, and and I mean, Radar Man, Michael. Come on. Oh man. We, so we, my favorite we, character we... of the entire series is Radar Man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know how much you love Batman, and then I thought. It was it was inevitable that at some point in this in this podcast you'd you'd get to a point where you can get some Batman chat into the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's this is just one thing. Like he plays with genres all the way through, and that's one where he just throws in a little bit of a almost a Western star superhero, um, kind of you you know stalking the rooftops of Tokyo. Oh, and, and, and then... with with a Danny Elfman type score as well exactly yeah. and he even jumps onto a van doesn't he when he's trying to you know to power away across to when he goes to he goes out of town to visit um 
you know where it all happened the the, the root of the lore of shonen bats and he jumps onto a, a van that has almost the exact bat signal sign logo on the side it's it's incredible i love that he's doing that i like that you, you mentioned score and how the score changes throughout the sound design changes throughout and it's with radar man that we have lots of that wonderful like analog glitchy radio stuff coming in makes me think a lot of darren aronofsky's pie and again going back to david lynch he loves playing with some audio signals doesn't he in his oh, yeah. in his films and messing with your realities too uh the, the Raya song plays on the radio in one of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then it sort of all comes together in a very interesting way for me. So when you're asking the question, not anymore of who is Shonen Bat, but what is Shonen Bat? How does he manifest? How can we beat him? It becomes this darkness and light in a way. Uh, there's on, on the one hand Shonen Bat, on the other hand Maromi, the one born out of our paranoia or anxiety about life. One is a literally a cuddly toy to help us get through life, but neither of them seems to be the solution. Right. If I think I'm, I'm on the right track. What do you think? No, I, I think, I think that's true. And I think the, the facade of Maromi kind of gets deconstructed across the series. And it, it definitely made me reconsider stuff that we saw when we were out in Japan, like characters like Rilakkuma, uh, who who are on the surface this this cute little face, uh, and is is totally harmless. And then you think, what what dependencies is is that thing holding? And I, it's getting into the realm of Perfect Blue stuff that where he's exploring uh, media escapism and commercialism within the media and the exploitation of of people and their their creations i was expecting some kind of big kaiju battle <laughs> between the <laughs> two of them um they, they almost instead are, are are these two forces that balance the status quo and the status quo is actually in some way broken or or poisonous maybe in scott satoshi Kon's mind because one is born out of the claustrophobia and the anxieties and gossip of of a megalopolis like Tokyo, and one is the pop cultural swings, you know, um, bread and circuses that that you're given to forget all of that. Yeah, and in it, fact, there's something yeah. deeper between the two that we have to find. Yeah, it feels like those two things, like Maromi and Shonen Bat, are in some way they're a release, but it feels like they're blocking this human connection between the characters. I mean, the um, kind of big emotional climax almost is when the ex-cop actually gets to talk to his wife face to face at one point um and that feels like a more rewarding scene than kind of the big shonen bat showdown mm-hmm. because it's two people reconciling a role that shonen bat plays throughout is is a a physical manifestation for an issue for people that kind of don't want to face something that is internal, that it's easier for there to be an outside force affecting your world than it is to face the thing that is within you. And on the other side of the spectrum is Maromi, that you have to have this physical salve to counteract that paranoia as well. I I, I think that the scenes with 
um, chief or the ex-chief uh, and, and his wife, they're, they're so wonderful. And I would not have expected with the first 10 episodes, the sort of gleeful nihilism of some of those episodes, the, 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 how playful and postmodern it all was, that we'd end on this really complex emotional point where the chief you know, thought he was the the protagonist of a procedural. He thought he was the great Sherlock of his times, you know, spouting all of these things about, oh, it'll all come together eventually, you know, almost like Knives Out. He's almost like uh, Daniel Craig's character in that about mm-hmm. how you always follow the arc of a trajectory of a mystery and you'll come to the solution. And he finds out that he was beaten by it. And instead he has to be, take on multiple menial jobs. He has to, in some ways, suffer the ego death of being a security guard with a guy that he nabbed and put in prison years before. And he retreats into a world of nostalgia. And this is what I find really fascinating. Certain elements of these themes are what Hayao Miyazaki plays with in his films like Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle. The world is in some way fundamentally broken. However, we have to find something at the heart of it um, to give us reason to live. And however, some critics of Miyazaki will say that he will then therefore lean too much on nostalgia and the world of the past. And I find it fascinating that... um, the world that the chief retreats into, that cut-out 2D, almost Paper Mario world, looks a lot like from up on Poppy Hill, this sort of <laughs> pre-Olympics, pre-modernised Tokyo, where everyone's smiling, everyone's got the right brand of cigarettes that you want. They've always got a couple of extra fish in the fryer to give, to, give, give, give you extra rather than charging you extra for it really fascinating that that isn't the solution and the solution is finally breaking through and reconnecting with your loved ones in some way yeah and that leads to maybe my favorite and the most satisfying scene in the whole series where the chief has to take up the bat the weapon of his enemy and in using that weapon breaks down that world of nostalgia that he's used to trap himself and it is so cool (laughs) so do you feel like everything is neatly wrapped up in a bow you don't have to return to this you're done you don't never have to watch again (laughs) unlike the prophetic vision man says at the end i don't know because it's there's a lot of emotions in that final episode michael you said you've you've got this catharsis with with the chief and his wife and the the big showdown of uh Maromi and Shonen Bat and all of that stuff is really clicking for me very into that and I I do think that he tries to get bring some sense of of logic back into uh Sukuko and the the original mystery and that she had a dog that she lost and then lied about that and then that that is the source of Shonen Bat and actually I think it, it was more interesting to just let Shonen Bat be uh, a thing that cannot be defined. And I like that he doesn't have an origin story. Uh, and so so that bit left me a bit cold. Um, but then the final few moments of it, the two years later, uh, we're just back into a cycle of doom. Love it. Um, <laughs> there, a, a new character has been created that's up on a billboard. Uh, Marumi is dead. Long live Marumi. Uh, and... Then there's a the the detective is now writing the prophetic equation on the floor, and this is all going to kick off again, and people are going to suppress all of their anxieties and invest those into a cute character, and then they're going to have a big battle that destroys Tokyo in two years' time. 
Well, Jake, if you if you enjoy the uh, big cycle of doom anime, you should maybe watch Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is quite similar, but with giant fighting robots. So maybe if you're starting your anime TV journey, that's Ooh. where you should go next. And I, I understand that like with uh, Satoshi Kon's opus, the manga that we may well get to one day, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion is one for fans who like unfinished things too. That is true, yeah. If you enjoyed the uh, the Mellow Maromi episode where they just turn into line drawings, then yeah, maybe that's that's the way to go. Evangelion also has one of the all-time great opening titles, doesn't it? Ah, so good, yeah. Steph, if it's you great. wanted to introduce Jake into the crazy world of great anime opening titles where words are thrown at the screen and songs don't really have anything to do with... <laughs> <laughs> what you're about to watch would you recommend any to him oh i think yeah evangelion a big one cowboy bebop which we've mentioned uh if you want to go proper high energy baffling uh nishiju is very fun that's a kyoto animation uh one and that's just like yeah just being absolutely bombarded with images and sounds for like two minutes before the whole thing starts uh yeah i'll send you a list jake all right we'll, thank uh, you we'll work through it together um okay so paranoia agent this this is our first tv show and we can't really put it into the same list that we would normally do at the end of each episode but i think it, it is time to move on to the popularity contest Well, Jake, as you just said, this is a TV series, so it's not really your level playing field to rank it alongside films. But this is our podcast and we can do whatever we want. And I want to force you to put this <laughs> somewhere in a ranking alongside the films we've watched so far. So we've had Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and now Paranoia Agent. How is the list looking? Okay. If we were to take a reading in this moment in which I've just finished the show. And if we did it in a month's time, I imagine these might be different. But if we went right now, Paranoia Agent is top. Ooh. That's so cool. And then Paranoia Agent, Perfect Blue, Millennium Mattress, Tokyo Godfathers. And are they close? Are there gaps? Are there tears? Oh, they are really close. Like okay. They are. It is fine. That's why I say, like, ask me in a month. I could see those switch um but it for me perfectly and paranoia agent absolutely the top two spots for me steph what do you think i think as a whole this is maybe just above millennium actress i think i put tokyo godfather's second on my ranking so mine would be perfect blue tokyo godfather's paranoia agent and then very very close almost even behind millennium actress but as a as a single episode, as a piece of short cinema, the etc. episode would have to be higher than that mm-hmm. on its own. On its oh own no! Then, then we're into a whole another episode <laughs> where we have to rank each third, the thirteen paranoia <laughs> agent. I think I agree. I think there are single episodes in here that I'd probably rank absolute top 
but as a single unit gosh it, as i said i think satoshi khan is one of the few filmmakers who's had a run of four films in a tv series that are all almost five star gold standard quality all the way through so it's really impossible to rank them i can't even remember what i'd said in the last week in the last episode but i'd, I'd probably put this second i'd put this under perfect blue so it would be perfect blue paranoia agent millennium actress tokyo godfathers yeah but jake um, i'm really excited because if you're saying that this and perfect blue is sort of prime con for you high quality content um paprika I think might be a good one for you then. I'm beginning to worry that I'm turning into some kind of edgelord because this is <laughs> this is not the um this is not what's expected considering my taste of the the Ghibli's. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, next episode we're going to be talking about Paprika in many ways, Satoshi Kon's uh, most well-known film, big influence on Christopher Nolan, although Christopher Nolan will not uh, accept that. Uh, he, he will deny that if you ask him. I mean, um, would he also deny any watching a Paranoia Agent in which there's an episode with a magician that also has a dual persona and walks through a door and also appears on the other side of a stage? Because I'm sure Christopher Nolan doesn't do anything that would be remotely similar to that. <laughs> well, let's get him on the show and we can ask him straight up. <laughs> We can we can pretend that it's a I don't know a large format techie cinematography podcast or something, and then say actually no, it's about Paprika and how you ripped it off for Inception. Um, but yes, until then, we'd love to know what you make of Paranoia Agents, listeners, uh, or any of the other films we've talked about so far. The mailbag is as open as ever. There are so many perspectives we could have on Satoshi Kon and his work, so we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, email us at ghibli at little.studios.com or get in touch with us on Twitter at Ghibliotech. And you can also follow Michael on Twitter, where he's at Michael J. Leader. You can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Steph on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe. And Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. Hi, listeners. Thanks for sticking through the credits. Now, Michael mentioned in the context section that Masashi Ando was working on Paranoia Agent as a character designer. Uh, and he also designed characters on Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and even for On Your Mark, the Miyazaki-directed music video. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.